was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> That's what we're kicking off with there. I'm not deleting that part. It works. It does work. It's a dark and stormy night. And here we are with our final part, for now at least, of our attempt to shed light on human slash child trafficking. Now, this week, we're going to be back to our normal formula of mocking a singular criminal, or, well, it really depends on how many are actually involved here. Technically, we're mocking multiple killers, but you'll get it. You'll figure it out. You guys are smart. There's actually a conspiracy theory behind this one, too, so we're covering that. So we're kind of covering multiple areas of what we represent today. Yeah, but Ashley... How do you think your week's gonna be? Oh, I haven't even gotten that far. Thank you. You're I haven't well. done the intro yet. Can you ask me that after we do the intro? Okay. Okay, cool. Cool. So, welcome back. And if you're here for the first time, welcome to Crime and Theory, a podcast dedicated to everything outside the parameters of normal. We are your hosts, Ashley. And Erin. Was that supposed to be your Sean Connery? I no, I just I just you. wanted to okay. deepen my voice. Okay, you Sound, just want to be dramatic about yeah. it. Yeah, more read. Gotta give the oomph. Yeah. Okay. We're trying to be as light as we can because these episodes are real heavy. We really are. You can ask me now. But Ashley, huh? how is your week going to be? What you thinking? Well, I'm thinking be? that this next week is going to be full of D&D planning and research for... Maybe a spoopy episode, because I'm pretty sure the next episode we record is going to be on the week of my birthday that we drop it. Then we definitely need some spoopies. Yes. So, here we are. What about you? How's, how's life going? Um, Wife and kids, they doing good? <laughs> you have a four-legged child, correct? I do. Oh. I do. And your wife, they- I hear she's uh, very annoying. Who has said that needs to get a good slapping to the face? You're going to slap your wife because your wife (gasps) said that. Yes, your wife did. (laughs) Guys, he's not going to slap me. That's a joke. But, um, I mean, my week is going to go good because I get to plan your death. It's a good time. Isn't it always good? Yeah. I mean, it's your possible death. You might live. I mean, you're only like level two, so you should be fine. Hopefully. Hopefully. We're talking about D&D. I'm not actually planning Aaron's death. I'm planning Rowan's death. His wood elf monk. Hey, complete name, Rowan Boats. I hate you. You're the worst human. (laughs) Anyway, you guys ready? You ready, Aaron? Yeah. Okay. Well, this week we are talking about Belgian child predator... Marc Dutroux and the possible involvement of Belgian officials. Let's get started. Sources for today's episode are Euronews.com, nytimes.com, britannica.com, murderpedia.org, theguardian.com, and consortiumnews.com. So, okay. Can I say something real quick? Sure thing. I honestly was thinking 
you were gonna put the word chocolate after Belgium. Instead of government? Yeah. That's okay. I thought Belgian chocolate and Belgian waffles quite a lot typing this up. So I was like, man, that would have been a a good reprieve from all this this darkness that we've been talking about for the last... right, yeah. Well, this is the last bit of darkness before we can dive into some October spooky hauntings and cryptids. This is our first... Ooh. This is our first October... Doing a podcast, so we're going to be able to do actual Halloween episodes. I'm so excited. I mean, like, by now, on like on this third episode of this, it's like... Feeling yeah. a little numb. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Valid. Now, as you guys know, Belgium is a French-speaking country. I don't speak French very well. So, hopefully I'm pronouncing these right. If not, apologies in advance. I barely speak English well. I barely speak well. So Mark Paul Allen, or Alain, I don't know, Dutroux, was born November 6th, 1956 in Isel, Belgium. He was the first of five children. His parents were both teachers who immigrated to Belgium, I'm sorry, the Belgian Congo, and then returned to Belgium itself in the year 1960. When Dutroux was 14 or 15 years old, his parents separated and he stayed with his mom for a short while. But when he was 16 years old, for whatever reason, he decided to up and leave home and took up working as a sex worker slash, no, just a sex worker, well, slash trafficking victim if you've been listening to the past two episodes. But he specialized in servicing other men. According to multiple sources, his criminal activity started in his youth and progressively got worse as he got older. So I'm sure you can imagine he had a lengthy record as a juvenile delinquent and a petty criminal. I don't really know what happened in his home life or if something was just off in who he was as a person, but either way, he definitely needed some help. Right. At the age of 19... He married his first wife. And for some reason, this first part of his life, like getting married at 19, what I'm about to tell you, really reminds me of Futoshi Matsunaga that we covered a few weeks ago. The Japanese serial killer. Oh, that yeah. may or may not have been the inspiration. Hang on. That may or may not have been the inspiration for the Alice Killings creepypasta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he get- got married at 19, like Futoshi. And in... 1983, the two divorced after having two children together. He supposedly beat his wife and definitely cheated on her, which still sounds like Futoshi Matsunaga. And at this point, he had already had an affair with a woman named Michelle Martin, or Martin, I'm going to say Martin, I'm American, who was a school teacher. Futoshi Matsunaga cheated on his wife with that one woman who was a preschool teacher. Oh, wow. You see the parallels? Like, it's wild, right? That is wild. And not necessarily in this order, but he and Michelle actually got married in 1989, and the two had three children together. So, fun fact, the two were actually in prison when they officially tied the knot. Why were they in prison? Yeah. Oh, you know, just the usual. Just five counts of child rape. Oh, that I just... Added that together. He has five kids. No, no, no. Not his children. Oh, not his children. No. 
So what had happened was he, Michelle, and accomplice had literally abducted young girls and raped them. And oh, they were convicted okay. for it. So five random. Right. Uh, as far as I know, family members remained untouched. Okay. But I can't speak for certain. I don't know what actually happened. But either way, not a not a good thing. No, not at all. Thankfully, this did go to court. And uh, so let's play a little guessing game. Anyone want to guess exactly how long he served? I'm going to say eight months. No, he actually did serve a little longer than that, but not a whole heck of a lot. So he was sentenced to 13 years for the destruction of five lives. However, does anyone want to guess? Well, that's how long he was sentenced. Anyone want to guess how long he actually served out of that 13 years? Five. Less. Two. More. Three. Three. Wow. That just doesn't feel long enough. You know, I I personally don't think that feels long enough either. But one more guessing game question, guys, and winner takes all. Anyone want to guess why he only served three years? Hmm. Because he got in good with someone, with someone? Not so much as having strings that he could pull. It was good behavior. Ah, uh, feels good to mock an idiot again. So when he got out, he attended therapy, which, you know, sounds good. Sounds like he wants to get help at least, you know, make his life right. Wrong. He managed to convince slash manipulate his psychiatrist that he was disabled so that he could receive government pension. Wow. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, I haven't used that line in a while. It gets worse. (laughs) He also used this therapy situation to receive sleeping pills and other sedatives. But not because he had an addiction issue or anything like that. Not because he actually had any real trouble sleeping that we know of. Wait, I'm just going to go for a guess. Okay. Because we've been at this for a while. All right. I'm just going to spitball and say he uses those to get victims. (gasps) Good job. Yay. Yes, he would use his prescriptions so he could more easily subdue his victims. I mean, honestly, we didn't actually think he was going to reform, did we? Because... No. I mean, we haven't spent very long on this episode yet. You're rubbing off on me. Yeah. So, DeTrue worked as an electrician at some point, which is an honest living for somebody to have. Yeah. But once he gained his disability slash government pension, he was officially unemployed. He was able to obtain multiple pieces of property, however. Seven houses, to be exact. How does someone get that much off disability to afford seven houses? He didn't. Government pension in Belgium is not that good, okay? I'm not saying it's not good. I don't know what it is. But it's not seven houses owned that good. Now, most of these houses did remain vacant, but that's got nothing to do with anything, really. He was able to obtain his assets through ill-gotten gains. He and accomplices would steal cars and make a profit off of that. Also, from what I read, he worked as a pimp. Okay. So, what is it? Is it a chop shop? Yeah. Yeah. Where they take apart cars and sell for parts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he did some of that and being a pimp. 
they apparently did well enough for themselves considering how much Dutru obtained. I mean, clearly. Yeah. However, let's wait till the end before we decide to take up a career in car theft, shall we? Do you want to ask what he would use these properties for? Um, let me see. Sex trafficking. So maybe to store victims? Oh, he definitely did that. So on June 24th of, I believe it was 1995, two eight-year-old girls, Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, went out for a walk in a suburb of, is it Liege or Lege? I, I don't know. But they disappeared. And it's no secret who took them. We started off with our killer here. Right. Detru had taken the girls to his house in Charlotte. I don't know. C-H-A-R-L-E-R-O-I. That's how I'm going to communicate from now on. Because I can only pronounce letters, apparently. I'm just going to spell all the places for you. Charlois? Charlois? I don't know. But... Either way, this sorry sack of garbage had constructed a dungeon where he kept the girls trapped for months. They were eight. He repeatedly raped the girls and made pornographic... Rephrase. He repeatedly raped the girls and made pornographic videos of himself abusing them. Posters were plastered on lampposts and car windshields, and even a leaflet campaign was organized dedicated to finding... Julie and Melissa. Their families were worried sick. They wanted their babies home. Understandably so. Of course. Only two months later, after the abduction of Julie and Melissa, on August 23rd, Dutru and his accomplice Michel Lelivre, I guess, or Lelivre, I, I don't know. He, they kidnapped two teenage girls, M. Marshall and, I don't want to butcher this, so it's E-E-F-J-E. I don't know I'm so sorry, Lambricks, age 17 and 19, respectively, in Ostend. Ostend? Ostend? hmm. Words. The girls were best friends, and they were on holiday or vacation. They had been on their way home from a nightclub the night they were abducted. Dutru kept the two imprisoned in a bedroom in the same house as Julie and Melissa. So, so far, he's only using one of his seven houses. Right. After a month of keeping Anne and her friend there, um, they were buried alive by Dutru and another accomplice of his named Bernard Weinstein. And remember how he made money from selling or from stealing cars and such? Yeah. Well, in November, Weinstein met the same fate. Well, I don't know that he was buried alive, but he was definitely killed. Because Dutru thought he had to die since he, meaning Weinstein, was wanted by police in connection with a stolen van. And Dutru didn't want to be connected to or wrapped up in that investigation. But joke was on him because guess who got arrested the following month for the very same theft? Mm. I mean, this guy was a complete moron. I guess he's still a moron. He's still alive. He only wound up serving four months in jail. I mean, look, dear Belgium, if anyone out there is listening that can get your justice system a little less messed up, can you work on that, please? Because your justice system needs help. I mean, I, for one, would appreciate it, and I don't even live there. So he only got four months from... Stealing a car. 
He only served three years for raping five girls. It's not even a year a girl. Yeah, man, that is really jacked up. When DeTrue went to go hang out at jail for his four-month stint, he told Michelle, his wife, to make sure that Julie and Melissa were fed. Things are about to get really hinky, okay? Later in court, because obviously they get found out. Sorry, spoilers. But later in court, she gave this bullcrap excuse that she was afraid to go down to the dungeon and feed them. So instead, she let them starve to death. Oh my god. So two eight-year-olds, maybe nine by this point, wasted away until their bodies could no longer function because a grown woman who knew of and helped her husband kidnap and rape girls was too afraid to go down into a basement and feed children? Uh Uh-uh. I ain't buying it. This psycho was legitimately allowed to be a primary school teacher, and, I mean- Uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. Why? Why? I mean, obviously, when she became a teacher, she probably wasn't a killer at that point, but still. But here's the odd part to me. The girls supposedly died in the basement dungeon the day DeTrue came home from jail. That's awfully convenient. He took the girls and buried their bodies in the garden of one of the houses he owned in a village of sar le boisier I guess, uh, or sar le boisier I don't know. I should have paid more attention in French class. But one of the strangest factors in this case was that There were reports of sightings of Melissa Russo after her abduction at various nightclubs. And we're going to go back to their deaths here in a bit, because there's a lot more to it that makes it even more hinky. But all four of DeTrue's victims at this point were dead. But then in May of 1996, DeTrue and his accomplice abducted a 12-year-old girl, Sabine Dardenne, who was riding her bike to school in Tournai near the French border. Now, did he get a, a new accomplice, or is no, it this is his is wife? The, no, it's not his wife. It's the second accomplice. Remember, he killed Weinstein, and then he had another accomplice besides his wife, that Le, Le Leaf or whatever. Oh, okay. That guy. Okay, so him and Le Leaf. Sure, him and the Leaf. Mm-hmm. So we're going to call him now. He held Sabine for four months in the dungeon... And during this time, she was starved and repeatedly raped. Three months into her captivity, DeTrue abducted 14-year-old Letitia, or Letitia, Delez, or Delay? It might be A, because it's easy at the end. I don't know. Who was walking home from her local swimming pool in Bertri. Now, Letitia endure, endured, sorry, the least amount of abuse, obviously. But that's not to take away from the trauma she suffered. However, four days after her capture, finally, DeTrue and his accomplice were arrested because there had been an eyewitness to her kidnapping who was able to give the license plate to police from the van that was used to abduct her. Oh, good. Thank goodness. And I'm not certain that this was the same day, but Michelle was also arrested as an accomplice in the crimes. And just a side note, she is considered... And I quote, the most hated woman in Belgium. Really? Yes. And uh, I mean, I can explain how hated she is, but I'm going to wait until toward the end. I was about to say, do tell. Oh, I will. 
It took two days for them to confess, but they eventually did. Dutroux even led police to his dungeon where both of his last victims were found alive. Oh, good. Then two days after that, so four days after the arrest, the bodies of Julie, Melissa, and Weinstein had been exhumed. And 17 days later, the bodies of Anne and Ifya, is that how I said? I think so. Okay. I think that's how it said. Uh, they were exhumed. It seems like a pretty open and shut case. But the truth is, it was anything but. There were signs of corruption throughout the investigation, and it was chock full of mistakes and oversights. For instance, Dutroux was already a convicted pedophile and even considered a suspect in the case of Julie and Melissa's disappearance. But police never even searched Dutroux's house for the first five months after their abduction. And when they did go to quote-unquote investigate, they literally heard the sound of children crying while inside the house. The police heard it. But they just chalked it up to kids outside and never investigated. I mean, they never even looked outside to see if there were any kids out there, so... Wait, they heard the children inside. And they thought it was coming from outside. Because I I can understand that. I can understand how you can have poor direction in your hearing. Because I do. However, you should never assume anything. No, especially Especially dealing with people like that. Yes, especially when you're investigating a missing persons case. These girls literally could have been saved. And I mean... I'm just going to say it. I kind of blame the police as much as I blame the kidnappers. Because they let it happen. They didn't bother to investigate in the slightest. Dropping the ball. I mean, if they didn't find kids outside, like if they could have looked outside to see if there were even kids out there. If there weren't any kids outside, then clearly the sound was coming from inside the house. I mean, I get police are people, but this is an area of career choices where incompetence should not be welcomed. So this case has been described by Belgians as the worst thing to happen to Belgium since World War II, by the way. Wow. It's really bad. And you remember how Melissa was reportedly seen in multiple nightclubs? Yes. People never, the police never investigated that either. What? They came up with this answer that, well, Dutroux worked alone and he was in jail during that time. So there's no way it could have been. I mean, the dude clearly had accomplices confessed accomplices and they never even thought about that and it wasn't even worth their time to investigate if he was supplying someone or a network of men with young girls because i mean if you're gonna see a young girl in a nightclub that should be the first thing you're thinking that they are being trafficked Uh, yeah which is uh what dutroux claimed during trial by the way that he was supplying these girls to a network of pedophiles so he was sex ring keeping some for himself but also, no, we don't know that he was keeping them for himself. They could have been put in a holding cell, if you will, before being trafficked out. We don't know. Oh. I mean, clearly he was abusing them. There was evidence of that. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't necessarily know that he was keeping them for himself. He could have very well been getting ready to sell them off. Or been in the process of selling them off. Right. Melissa's parents actually believed Dutroux after his admission on the stand. Dutroux denied All charges brought up against him, and he claimed to be but a small part in a pedophile ring run by the Belgian elite, and that police had even helped him abduct the girls. Holy crap. 
He even named a prominent Belgian businessman named Michel Nihul, Nihul, N-I-H-O-U-L, as his link to this trafficking ring. This guy was one of a was one among 13 people charged in the case on kidnapping, rape, conspiracy, and even drug offenses. But more on him in a minute. Melissa's parents also believed that the authorities' failure to investigate properly pointed to a cover-up of a wider cast pedophile ring that included police and members of the Belgian government. Julie's dad, Jean-Denis Lejeune, also did not keep quiet about his distrust in the investigation after it became public knowledge that video had been seized from Dutroux's house during the first police investigation. You know, the same day that they heard the girls crying in the basement? Yeah. And didn't investigate? They seized a video. They never even watched it during the initial investigation. This video contained recorded evidence of Dutroux literally constructing the cell in which he held the girls. That almost sounds like blatant disregard. Feels to me like they didn't plan on investigating. No. But I mean... Laziness, incompetence, and corruption, none of those things should ever be welcome in a police force. And by corruption, that includes racism. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. Because, I mean, I was just thinking about the last episode where you were saying, you know, the teachers... uh, Police. Police pastors are all... When it comes to stuff like this, no one is beyond suspicion. Yeah. One of Detrue's accomplices actually claimed after his arrest that he, the accomplice, hosted had hosted a party which had been attended by government officials and police officers. And my assumption with that statement is that it wasn't just your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill party with loud music and booze. It's just my guess. Detrue's own mother actually tried to contact police in 1995 to alert them of her belief that her son was holding girls in one of his vacant houses. Wow, it sounds like his mom's the only one, the With only honest one. Mm-hmm. Oh, we like her because later I'm going to give a quote from her and she talks sense. In October of 1996, the examining magistrate, Jean-Marc Connerot, I guess, or Connerot, was let go from the case. And he's good, too. The examining magistrate was a good guy. He was let go from the case because he had attended a fundraiser for the victim's families, and that was considered a conflict of interest. Now, I can see how that's a conflict of interest. However, there are people that get away with a lot more than that in this case, so that's where I'm bothered. And that's why I don't agree with the fact that they let him go, because he actually was very proactive, and he was trying to crack the case well maybe that's why they let him go and that's what i'm thinking because there are more people that are, are let go that are trying to or that were trying to actually do their jobs as well and they were let go with no actual reason why but when connor was dismissed it caused nearly half a million belgians to participate in sit-ins strikes and riots for three days following his dismissal because he was actually doing his job and people liked him And on October 20th of 1996, the people of Belgium decided to honor the victims and protest at the same time. In a march called the White March, people took to the streets in what was the largest protest in Belgian history with an estimated 275,000 to 350,000 participants. Whoa. Mm -hmm. 
The White March was also a way of calling for parole reform. Because remember, he got paroled after only three years. Detruded. Oh, yeah, that's right. And this was a very peaceful demonstration. People wore white, hence why it was called the White March. And they silently walked, carrying flowers and balloons to honor the victims. And this is said to have been the culmination of all of the protests. Like, this was everything coming to a head. And because of Dutroux's crimes, roughly one-third of all Belgians with the same last name as him decided they were going to change it so as not to be associated. I can't blame them. Nah, yeah, I definitely can't blame them. Were they allowed to do that? Yeah, you can legally change your name. I mean, like, without having to pay for it. I mean, I didn't say it was free. Yeah. I mean, I know I know. change your, your, your last name is definitely a process, and it, it's not exactly free. I'm sure they had to pay for it. Oh, okay. Because it's a choice. It's not like the government was saying, hey, you need to change your last name because of this. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it was a choice. They, I'm sure they paid for it if it costs over there. Which I'm sure it does. Everything costs everywhere. Yeah, that's a valid point. In 1997, a commission had been appointed to investigate this case. They, according to Britannica.com, had found indications that some of the suspects, including Dutroux, had been protected. Which, of course, fueled further the conspiracy theory fire. In 1998, Dutroux was being transported to a court hearing when he escaped. Again, He's a moron because his lawyers were in the process of arguing for his release, saying that he had been held for two years without trial, which was a breach of the European Convention on Human Rights. He was recaptured in like a couple of hours, but (laughs) because he booked it, his lawyers' arguments were silenced because they were finally able to charge and convict him on something or just charge him on something that could stick. So if he would have just stayed... But I'm glad, you know, as stupid as he is, I'm glad he ran because it meant that he was put, kept in jail, you know? Oh, definitely. The only time that it was a good thing that a prisoner escaped. During the trial, one of the survivors, Sabine, who was 12 at the time, she had testified to having been drugged, stripped, and having a chain fixed around her neck. She confronted Detrue and asked him why he hadn't killed her. He responded with, It was never my intention to harm her in any way. Sure. And he claimed that he had actually saved her from a quote-unquote wicked chief, whatever that means. So even if this guy wasn't working for a uh, pedophile ring, he needed psychological help. Like, what he's saying makes no sense. A wicked chief. Yes. But when Sabine recounted her nightmare, another victim's father, you know, um... And Marshall, who was the 17-year-old, her father was in court. Paul, I think was his name. He fainted after he heard Sabine recount what happened to her. He fainted in the courtroom and he had to be transported to the hospital because of this. Because same thing happened to his daughter, you know. It literally affected him physically. That's how sickened he was by it. Supposedly, no evidence was ever found of a pedophile ring, by the way, quote unquote. But my question is, did they even try to find one? Because they never tried to find the girls. I'm going to say that's a hard no. In 2002, he finally did admit to being responsible for the deaths of at least two girls. And then in 2004, he was convicted on charges of murder, kidnapping, and rape. He was sentenced to life in prison. The actual number of his victims is unknown, though. Michelle, you know, his wife, was sentenced to 30 years. 
She was released after having served 16 years in 2012. Oh, that's, yeah, still too short. Remember how I said she's the most hated woman in Belgium? Mm-hmm. People were understandably very unhappy, and they decided they were going to protest again. People literally lit, lit coffins with her name on them Holy on fire. Crap. One article that I read from New York Times said that after her release, she was going to live in some convent that they had arranged for her to go to, which I say is good. She supposedly is repentant and whatnot now, and but she, she's still guilty, though. You know, she's still to blame. It's not my place to forgive or not. That's up to the families of the victims. But at the same time, she had a choice. Her husband was put in jail for four months. She had four months to let these girls go. Yeah. She had four months to just feed them, keep them alive. She, well, that's, again, still hinky. I'll get to that in a minute. And their accomplice, Michelle, was found guilty of kidnapping, but not rape or murder. And in 2019, he was granted parole after serving 23 of his 25-year sentence. So two people involved out of the three that are definitely involved anyway, are now free walking the streets of Belgium. In 2003, while they were in prison, Michelle and Mark got a divorce. So it seems kind of fitting since that's how they got married. Feels full circle. (laughs) How romantic. And last October, on October 20th, on the anniversary of the White March, by the way, another protest began in the streets of Belgium. It was the faint echo of the White March, but the protesters came out to make a stand against Mark Dutroux's potential early release. 400 people participated. His own mother spoke out. This is why we like her. His mother spoke out when asked if she thought that he would re-offend. Her response was, quote, I am certain he will start again. Mark isn't ready to be released because he still wants to attribute others to the responsibility of what he did, end quote. I mean, she tried to turn her son in. I don't blame her for anything. I say kudos to her. Same. Now, more on the conspiracy and how, why there is a conspiracy because everything is so hinky. And a lot of this information came from one article because the article writer, she really did her research and she did the legwork and interviewed a butt ton of people. Between 1996, when the slime ball was arrested, and 2002, 20 potential witnesses connected with this case wound up dying under mysterious circumstances. What? That... Michel or Jean-Michel Niul, I don't know how to pronounce words, N-I-H-O-U-L, that businessman. He was a pub owner and was frequently seen at sex parties, so he participated in those kinds of things. Which, if you're consenting adults, you know, no kink shaming. The judge who had been dismissed for attending that fundraiser, he believed that Jean-Michel was the brains behind the kidnapping operation. Lelief, or however you say his name, the accomplice, he told the former judge, or whatever he was, that Detroit and Jean-Michel, N-I-H-O-U-L, would meet in the prison yard to make plans, which aroused Conrad or Conrad's suspicion. Then one day, Lelief broke off feeding Conrad any information after he said that he had been threatened. Now, the article from TheGuardian.com was written by a woman named... Olenka Frankel, or Frankel? I don't know how to say her name either. I'm sorry. I'm just Olenka. We're going to call her Olenka. She actually met, I'm just going to say Niall. I don't know. N-I-H-O-U-L. Again, I'm sorry you keep spelling in your ears, guys. She met him in a restaurant in Brussels. 
According to Alenka, he was very grabby with her, and he was trying to pull her onto him in the restaurant booth. Like, that's how confident he was that he was untouchable. Gross. Isn't he, though? Or wasn't he? Sorry. She had to get her colleagues to actually help her out in this situation. And before I forget, this guy actually did serve two years of a five-year sentence on drug trafficking and criminal conspiracy, but he never served any charges. Served on any charges for sex trafficking. He died at the age of 78, October 23rd, 2019. But in this interview, he told Olenka that he would never go to court because he held enough information to bring down the Belgian government. And after Dutroux's arrest, Judge Conrad made an appeal to the survivors of pedophiles to come forward and tell the police what they knew. A woman named Regina Luf, 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 I'm sorry. She stepped forward and told investigators that from the age of 12 onward that she had been quote-unquote given to a family friend, Tony Van Den Boger, I think, by her own parents. Tony had a key to their house and he would collect her for the weekend from school where he would take her to sex parties and pass her around to other men where she would be secretly filmed while they violated her. Oh my god. She told Olenka that, quote, it was highly organized, big business, blackmail. There was a lot of money involved, end quote. Police recorded an interview that they had with her where she described certain regular clients, which included judges, one of the country's most powerful politicians at the time, who I believe is now deceased, and a big-named banker. She listed all of the names that she knew the men by and even gave detailed accounts of their houses, apartments, and districts where she and other kids had been taken to entertain these people. Now, here's the kicker. She told the cops that this quote-unquote entertainment that she and the other kids were provided for went beyond sex. She said that it was sadism, torture, and even murder on occasion. She described the places, the victims, and the methods which were used to commit these murders. Regina said that Mich, meaning Jean-Michel, was the one who had organized these parties. That pub owner that said he had enough information to bring down the Belgian government? Yeah. Yeah. That he was the one who organized them. Regina said in the interview that, quote, he abused kids in a very sadistic way, end quote. But to make things more interesting, she also said that a certain convicted felon was there. Quote, Dutroux was a boy who brought drugs cocaine to these parties he brought some girls watched girls all these events i'm sorry at these events i can't read at these events nihil nihil i I, oh somebody please tell me how to pronounce his name i'm so sorry was sort of a party beast while detrue was more on the side now if her accounts were completely truthful this information could have been used to crack the case wide open but then conorop was dismissed because remember he's the one who put out the plea for anyone to come forward right He was dismissed, and he was replaced by a judge that was still really wet behind the ears. His name was Judge Jacques Langlois, I guess. He spent at least half a decade, the new judge, arguing with the public prosecutor who had also been assigned with him to the case. He was more concerned about arguing than actually solving anything. That guy's name was Michel Bollet. And side note, Mark and Michel apparently are very popular names in Belgium, which I guess it makes sense. It's Mark and Michael, so... They're very common names in basically any European language, English included. But from then on, the Detroux file didn't really gain any new evidence, and the case never gained traction. 
Then, get this, the team of officers who had interviewed Luff, Regina, and other witnesses were suddenly let go from the case. Look, there's no way this is a coincidence. But here's the deal. The ones who had been dismissed already believed that they had proven Luff's story. At least one murder that she had described in interview matched an unsolved case almost perfectly. I, just, I was just about to say, I feel like we should really be putting on our skepticals. Whoop, skepticals. Skepticals. Rudy Hoskins, who had been assigned to re-examine the case, was fully convinced that Regina's story was true. Quote, she gave us some details that made us think it's impossible to give without having been there at that place. The way the body was found at that time, the way she described the person who was killed, end quote. What she had described was the torture which had eventually killed 15, a 15-year-old girl known as Chrissy. It was a sort of bondage, so her legs and hands and throat were connected with the same rope, and so when she moved, she strangled herself, quote, end quote. Oh, jeez. She also stated that the big business guy, Jean-Michel, we're just going to call him Jean-Michel, and Dutroux had both been present that night and that Jean-Michel had participated in Chrissy's murder and while Dutroux had watched. Christine Van He's body had been found in 1984. Her body had been dumped on the grounds of a disused mushroom farm on the outskirts of Brussels. What's a nickname for Christine? Chrissy. I mean, there's a lot of Christines out there, don't get me wrong, right. but so far so good. This farm had since been demolished, but back in 1996, she was able to describe the place in great detail, like the building and everything. From the wallpaper, to the sinks, to the hooks on the ceilings, according to Alenka. There was a network of stairs and adjoining rooms that were unique to this building. Like, it's not your average everyday layout of a building. Right, right, right. Well, the son of the former owner of that farm actually confirmed those details and said that the only way she could have even known about this layout was if she had been in the place. And he didn't know her personally, so it's not like he or his family gave her a tour. Yeah, it wasn't some coincidence. Right. Now we're going to get to my least favorite person besides the actual killer. Killers, sorry. So the writer of this article, like I said, she interviewed a butt ton of people. Right. She interviewed prosecuting, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. She interviewed prosecuting general and Tilly, Philly, Tilly. I'm just going to say Tilly, T-H-I-L-Y, guys. I'll just spell it out. She presented Anne, Alenka, who wrote the article, presented Anne with the information gathered from Regina. And she, meaning Anne, literally shrugged her shoulders, called Luf a fantasist, and basically called her a liar even though there were other people who could corroborate her statement. So, if again, if you're in Belgium, can we get this woman fired? Is she already fired? If so, great. If not, can we get her fired? I know, that's right. Do they just hand out big government jobs to anybody? Because, I mean, I can move to Belgium and, you know, help. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but Christine Van Hees' case was allowed to just sit there collecting dust for 12 years by Judge Van Espen. Later, it came to light that this judge, remember how I said Judge Conrad, he was let go for barely anything, but a lot more people were able to get away with a lot more. Right. Judge Van Espen's who I was referring to. Later, it came to light that this judge had been close with uh, Jean-Michel and his then-wife. 
But get this, he wasn't only close with the guy, Judge Van Espen's sister was even the godmother to Jean-Michel's child. What? If that's not conflict of interest, I don't know what is. Very conflict. But nobody thought to investigate that, and Van Espen determined that it was no conflict of interest, and he stayed on the case. That's shady. He let a case of, he let a murder case, a homicide, sit collecting dust without letting anyone actually do their job to it, or job with it while claiming that there was no conflict of interest. That, to me, says he was covering up. That screams of a cover-up. That's probably definitely a cover-up. He literally even ordered officers to stay out of the case. Yeah, that really sounds like a cover-up. He only stepped down as judge in the Mushroom Factory case, you know, Christine Van Hees' case, in 1998, two years after Dutroux was arrested, by the way, after someone finally exposed the relationship. In the spring of 1997, that's when Regina Luft's interrogators were let go, and a new team was placed to quote-unquote reread her testimony. When the first group was let go, the media was briefed, and they were told that the previous team had quote, manipulated evidence of Luft, end quote. The entire team was like, what the crap? No, nothing was done of the sort. We were doing our jobs. And nobody was ever able to prove that they did it either. Then someone, ever so conveniently, leaked her name to the press. This was supposed to be an anonymous thing. Right. Not anonymous in the investigation, but anonymous to the public that she was speaking with police. Somebody leaked her name to the press. So when the media got a hold of her name, they started a smear campaign against her. A government-owned TV station, RTBF, started a campaign to convince the public that Dutroux was a quote-unquote isolated pervert which literally can't even be true since he had accomplices, so that there's no way he was an isolated pervert. Right. And they pushed Jean-Michel's questionable innocence and pushed the Luf is crazy agenda. A TV program called Au Nom de la Loi, I guess, floated, quote, floated Luf's face over a backdrop of crows pecking over debris orchestrated by a Blair Witch-style soundtrack. Her aging parents appeared as tragic victims of a deranged, deranged fantasist whose false memories had blighted their last years, end quote. What they failed to tell everybody was that Luf's parents had actually admitted that Tony indeed had a key to their house and full access to their child. They also failed to mention that Tony, the guy who supposedly sold Regina off to men yeah. and filmed them having or filmed them violating her. They failed to mention that Tony admitted to having been in a quote-unquote relationship with Luf. Mm-hmm. An underage girl? Yeah. Mm. Sounds questionable to me. Questionable. And because of all of this, Luf was not allowed to testify in court. So they got what they wanted. But regardless of the validity of Luf's statement, the case was clearly being controlled by the government. I mean, why else would there be a smear campaign run against her by a government-owned station? Yeah, that makes sense. Then, get this, Melissa Russo. Melissa was one of the two eight-year-old girls. Yeah. Her mom was not allowed to see her daughter's body, apparently, when it was uncovered. And when she asked who would identify Melissa then, they told her that Detrue had identified her. You let the killer ID his victim? What? Like, don't you need some confirmation for that, though? Yeah, you think? I mean... I mean, isn't it really supposed to be up at to the least, relatives? Well, at least let the family say goodbye. I don't. I just don't understand. It's just 
I, will, I could say this is a poorly handled case, but this screams of corruption. I mean, how do you let a killer ID a victim? He could have very well said it could have been anybody. You're right. I mean, he could have mixed up the two girls. How? I mean, granted, there were photos plastered all over the place in public yeah. with their names underneath. But at the same time, I just don't know. It It's hinky, I'm telling you. And the Russos don't think that it's logical that the girls were locked in that cage starving for four months. Melissa's parents? Yeah. The girls supposedly died the day DeTrue came home from jail, like I said. The question is, how could they have lived off of literally nothing for four months? They were eight years old. And scientifically speaking, because I looked it up, a person, probably referring to a grown person at that, can't even survive but some two months without food. And that's with an adequate amount of water. Without water, we're looking at around three weeks maximum and eight days minimum. And that's, like I said, probably for a full-grown person. An eight-year-old who's still growing? There's no way. Probably way less than that. Yeah. Which means that they were kept alive for months somehow. You can't tell me they that Michelle never gave them food. Or that they weren't... Something's up here. Yeah. Something's shady. Something's really fishy. As a matter of fact, the Russos believe that the girls weren't even in the dungeon at all. They don't think it was a coincidence that Melissa had been seen multiple times by multiple people in different nightclubs, which I don't think that's a coincidence either. Once she was seen in an upstairs room of a nightclub in that C-H-A-R-L-E-R-O-I, Charlois, Charlois, I don't know. The sightings, when reported, were never followed up, like I said. The Russos believed that someone else had access to the girls even while DeTrue was away, and I don't think they were talking about Michelle. That makes a lot more sense. Right. They questioned why else would the hairs found at the scene not be sent off for DNA analysis. Another question posed is, why else would Judge Langlois, I guess, the one who replaced Conrad, refuse to have the hairs tested despite the pressure from Prosecutor Borlet, who held the belief that DNA could have revealed other parties involved? Because it could have revealed more parties involved. See, that's my thing. And now let's go back to Anne, T-H-I-L-Y. Tilly, I guess. Anne. We're just going to call her Anne because first names I can work with. She's the one who shrugged her shoulders and said that Regina was a fantasist and basically a liar, right? I, I just genuinely think this woman should be fired. I mean, it's just my opinion. Maybe she's a nice person. I don't know. Maybe she's a nice person. I doubt she's a nice person. She sounds like a nightmare to me. But she said, quote, there was no need to get the hairs analyzed as no one else entered the cage. And how exactly do you know that, ma'am? Without a shadow of a doubt, how do you know that nobody else entered the cage? Unless you were there. But I'm not saying she was there. I don't know. But at the same time, you can't definitively say no one was there without proof. Yeah. But you're refusing to let yourself have the proof. You need all the proof. And she continued the quote with, There was no network, so there was no need to look for evidence of one. Again, how can you know that if no one ever looked? How can you be so certain? I mean, common sense would say to test it anyway, to put everyone's doubts at ease. Worst case scenario, it further proves Dutrue's guilt and everybody else was wrong. Best case scenario, it exposes an entire ring of Cretans and puts them away behind bars and maybe get Belgium a better government. You can't really lose here. And I'm not accusing her. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised if she was complicit, whether under threat or possible payoff. I'm not saying that's definitely the case. I'm just saying if that were the case, I wouldn't be surprised. 
And she continued with, quote, In any case, the hairs have all now been analyzed. All 5,000. Yeah, that's right. I'm making fun of her. <laughs> End quote. And when asked about the results, she said, quote, unquote, nothing. She was apparently really smug with this answer. She said, quote, no evidence of any relevance in the true affair. That's what was found. No evidence of any real evidence or of any real relevance in the true affair. Which proves, of course, that Lang Wao was right all along, end quote. But here's the thing. The writer of the article, Olenka, she said that this is not true. Sources close to the investigation said that as of 2002, now this was 18 years ago, but she said the hairs had still not been analyzed. Then our lovely Anne said that DNA tests were run to prove that DeTrue was the culprit. Okay, fine. But you're telling me all, quote, unquote, 5,000 came back inconclusive? There's no way. That's highly unlikely. And why were they inconclusive? Because the girls' bodies were too decomposed to test for DNA. If they were too decomposed to test for DNA, did you test or not? And another thing, apparently the autopsy stated that the bodies were not very decomposed. So again, which is it? And apparently samples have been taken, but nobody seemed to be able to figure out what happened to the results. I'm guessing they got quote-unquote Or the samples. Lost. I don't know. The whole thing is so confusing. Now, remember when I said that there were 20 deaths in like a six or eight year time span? I think like six year time span or so. Yeah. Maybe eight. That were really suspicious, like under mysterious circumstances. Right. A man named Bruno Tagliaferro, T-A-G-L-I-A-F-E-R-R-O. I don't know. He knew or claimed to know about the abductions of Julie and Melissa. He also claimed to know about the vehicle which had been used in the abduction. This guy was a scrap metal merchant, so maybe he had dealings with the true in the past, I'm assuming, because, you know, they stole cars. Oh, yeah. This guy might not have known that he was working with stolen cars. I don't know. I don't know how they knew each other. But he told his wife back in 1995 that DeTrue was trying to get him killed. That get that dude killed? Yes, this Bruno guy. Well, strangely enough, he was found dead. It was initially ruled a heart attack, which, fine, people die of heart attacks all the time. But his wife, Fabienne Jopard, didn't buy it for a second. Or is it Fabienne? 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 I'm sorry. She had samples sent to the United States only to be proven right. He had died not from a heart attack but poison. Jopard told reporters that she was determined to find her husband's killer. Now, here's the thing. She made the statement public. Well, not long after she had been found, not long after that, she had been found dead in her bed. And to quote the article, mattress smoldering. This death was declared a suicide. And I'm going to say that's unlikely. For one, if you're on fire, you're not going to stay still and just take it. You're just not. You're going to reflexively try to put the fire out. Uh, yeah. Unless you took sedatives. But if you took sedatives, how did you set yourself on fire? I have questions. I have so many questions. Yeah, how would you do that? Unless she put a candle on the bed beside her and tipped over and lit her on fire after. But this just seems very unlikely. Uh, Yeah, that's a little... It's weird, right? Too complicated. It's really hinky, right? It'd be a suicide. And the article... Well, let me go back a second. And another thing is she said that she was determined to find her husband's killer. That is not a woman who is ready to kill herself. That is a woman with a purpose to live. Yeah. And the article finishes with a quote from Regina Luff. Quote, in Belgium, if you're a potential witness, you're either dead or like me, 
mad, end quote. The BBC said that investigators believed Dutroux and Jean-Michel were planning a long-distance prostitution trafficking network involving cars and the import of girls from Slovakia, quote-unquote. In 2009, WikiLeaks published the Dutroux dossier, I'm sorry, Dutroux dossier. Belgian officials actually threatened to even sue WikiLeaks over it, but basically WikiLeaks was like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> so they never got sued. <laughs> But in this dossier, there were 800 mentions of Jean-Michel with the statement that said he had, quote, proposed to reduce traffic girls from other countries, end quote. And Dutroux had requested help from his brother to push a car allegedly laden with bodies into a canal. And there were more observations that apparently strongly suggest that Dutroux the true, sorry, and Jean-Michel were involved in more crimes than the ones that had been investigated and the ones they had been charged for, and that there may have even been additional unknown accomplices. The public, of course, was outraged at the fact that these potential links were never investigated. Convenient. Huh. So convenient. And lastly, I'm going to say Hubert is probably Hubert. Massa, I guess, M-A-S-S-A was the chief prosecuting attorney in the Detroux case. He is yet another person who died during this entire ordeal. Investigators said that after meeting with Mark Verwilgen, V-E-R-W-I-L-G-H-E-N, the Minister of Justice, that he had returned home in South Belgium, locked himself in his study, and shot himself. He left no clues or any note as to why. He had three children that he left behind. And I'm just going to say it. People don't just kill themselves for no reason. Mm-mm. So my that question. That like a setup. Yeah, that was my question. Did he kill himself or did someone else do it? Is it like a locked room mystery? I mean, I doubt if anyone from his family will ever hear this, but I do not mean any disrespect. It's just with so many suspicious goings on, I literally cannot help but wonder right now. That is it. The end for now. And we may do another series in the future. I don't even know. But after all of this research, I kind of need a break, guys. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't blame you. And next week, from the time this drops, like I said, I believe is my birthday. So I'm going to do something spoopy. Spoopers! And a special thank you again to Ramanda for lighting the fires under our butt for this series. And Aaron, is there anything else you want to say? Oh, man. I almost want to say just question everything. Yeah, I agree with you. Question everything, don't assume anything, and never trust anybody. And I haven't said this in a while, but if you care to follow us for clues and hints from upcoming episodes, images pertaining to episodes that you've listened to, feel free to follow us on Instagram at Crime and Theory Pod, or Crime and Theory on Twitter, or Crime and Theory Pod on Facebook. Any rates, reviews follows on any podcasting platforms would be ever so appreciated but other than that i think we are good to go for the week and if that's the case stay safe this week guys remember apparently you can't even trust the belgian government (laughs) and as always don't get haunted we will see you guys next thursday Mm